Well, good morning, everyone. How you guys doing out there? It's good? Good. It's good to be with you this morning for those of you who are on the patio with us and for all those of you who are participating uh, from home. We are now in week five of a 12-week series called The Lifestyle of Jesus, Following a Different Way. And this is a series where we are looking, again, not necessarily at what Jesus taught, but rather how he lived his life. E. Stanley Jones once said this, the Christian way, in other words, Christ's way, is the way, the way to do everything. Not merely the way of salvation, which we can often minimize it to, but the way, full stop, he says. The way to do everything. Not merely the way of salvation, but the way, full stop. Why? Because it's the way of Jesus. It's the way of our Savior, and as his followers, we don't just follow what he says, we follow his example. We live as he lived, we do as he did, we, we imitate his practices, because he's showing us the way to live. He's not just telling us the way to live, he's actually showing it to us, he's demonstrating it for us, he's showing us his way. So we're making stops then throughout the Gospel of Luke to explore this way, looking at the way of Jesus. And today, we're looking at Luke chapter 5. So if you've got your Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 5. We're starting at verse 27 and going to verse 32. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. Luke writes this. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, as always, what do we see Jesus doing in this passage? What's going on in this passage, and what do we see Jesus doing in this passage? Well, first thing we see him doing in this passage here is, is engaging with a tax collector. And so before we go on and, and talk about anything further, we need to set some context for tax collectors in Israel. Tax collectors, and some of you may know this, but tax collectors were most often Jewish men who had simply taken advantage of a good opportunity to work for the empire and collect money for Rome. So they were a very hated group of individuals among the Jewish population. Because the taxation system in Rome, as Will Barclay has put it, really lent itself to abuse. The, the Roman custom was to farm out the taxes. So essentially what would happen is, is they would assess every area. They would go into every district and assess every area, um, giving it a certain figure or an amount. And then they sold the right of collection to whoever was the highest bidder. So it was as long as, the, as, if you were the buyer, as long as you were able to take in that assessed amount and give it to the empire, you could usually pocket the rest. And at this time, folks were being heavily taxed, which is why there were so many rebel groups rising up. I mean, people were angry. This was hard-earned money. Most, of the, most people were hardly able to get by, let alone be able to pay uh, for food for their family. And, and oftentimes, if you ran into a tax collector along the way, you had no idea what you were even having to pay for. 
People were aware of certain taxes, but a lot of the time, you know, normal people didn't know even what they were being taxed for. So naturally, these Jewish men who were collecting hard-earned money from their fellow Jews were seen as traitors. I mean, imagine standing in line with someone, or imagine standing in line to pay your taxes, you know, money that could be used to feed your family for the next week or two, and it's the boy you grew up with standing behind the tax booth taking your money. Tax collectors in the Jewish Talmud were seen, were, were actually associated with robbers and murderers. They couldn't go into the temple. Most of the time, their families and friends disowned them. So they had little to no community, if at all, um, other than their own fellow tax collectors. So you can imagine then, knowing that kind of background, you can imagine then the surprise on people's faces in this scenario. When Jesus and his little group of followers are walking along, and they pass by one of these tax booths. And if you've seen, if, you, if some of you may have seen, um, seen the Chosen series, I know Pastor Ed has mentioned this actual, this, this exact scene previous in one of his sermons. It's hard to, to get the image out, but uh, they depict this scene really well. So Jesus has told his disciples that they're going to be a guest at someone's house for dinner that evening. He hasn't said who or where, but they're going to be a guest somewhere, or they're going to be guests somewhere at someone's house for dinner. And as they're going along, they, they pass by this tax booth, and his disciples are chit-chatting with one another, you know, dialoguing about whatever. And, and as they're going along, you know, they see Levi, or otherwise known as Matthew, um, sitting behind the tax booth, and they scowl at him, and they snarl at him, but they keep going. And they maybe get about 20 feet past this tax booth. Levi's, you know, staring at Jesus because he's seen him before. He knows some of the things that he can do. He's somewhat marveling at who this man is. And suddenly Jesus stops and turns around. The disciples all pause, wondering what he's doing. And then he looks at Levi in the booth, and he says, Levi, follow me. And everyone, the silence that we're experiencing right now, <laughs> everyone, in that scene, the Roman centurion, all of the people standing in the lineup, all of the disciples, and Levi himself, all look shocked. What is Jesus doing? Like, you don't understand, Jesus. This man has robbed us for years. This man is a traitor in our people, to our people. What, what are you doing? Just imagine Jesus staring into the eyes of someone who you despise. Someone who has done incredibly hurtful things to you. Someone who just rubs you the wrong way. That has chosen life, that has made life choices that, that have been actually hurtful to you. That has angered you or, or frustrated you over years. Imagine Jesus looking at that person and saying, follow me. It's a little bit humbling, isn't it? Jesus' eyes remain locked on Levi. And the text tells us, verse 28, Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. The same language, the exact same language verbatim is actually used just a little bit earlier in chapter, five to, to, in chapter 5 to explain how Peter, Andrew, James, and John all responded to Jesus' call. All of them, quote-unquote, left everything and followed him. 
In other words, what classifies you, what qualifies you for apprenticeship to Jesus is not who you are or where you've come from or what you've done, but rather how willing you are to drop everything when he calls you, including your assumptions about other people, and follow him. That's what matters most to Jesus. As Leon Morris put it, when Levi walked out of that job, that was it for him, right? He couldn't, if this whole rabbi following thing didn't work out, he couldn't just go back to being a fisherman like the other guys. It was a final commitment for him. This was it. This is all he had. He's forsaking his livelihood, everything he's worked for, all of his wealth. He's forsaking all of that for Jesus. And yet look at how he responds. What's Levi's first instinct? Verse 29, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his home. Apparently, that's where they were all going for dinner that evening. See, this invitation from Jesus wasn't a burden for Levi. It was exhilarating. This is the impact of being accepted and embraced by Jesus. Celebration and radical hospitality are a natural response. It's how, it's how Levi naturally responds to Jesus inviting him in to the table, inviting him into his space, inviting him to be a follower. His natural instinct is to have a party. But not just that, because evidently Levi wanted to share this excitement with his colleagues and introduce them to this new rabbi as well, because the rest of verse 29 tells us that a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. So we're not just talking one tax collector here, like, okay, Jesus, you can have one around the table, but that's it. No, there's a whole host of them gathering around the table at Levi's house. So it's no surprise then that when a group of Pharisees come by and see this, you know, sinful hoopla going on, they're somewhat outraged. They're already a little suspicious of Jesus, right? We see that all throughout the Gospels. They're suspicious of Jesus from the very beginning, and now, good grief, the man is hanging out with tax collectors. So they're likely standing then, when they come here, they're likely standing then at the gate, staying back so that they don't become contaminated by this sinful thing going on, And they call a few of the disciples over and ask them, verse 30, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? And the disciples, of course, are a little tongue-tied because they don't actually know either, (laughs) right? They're still trying to figure this out. They're just as confused as anybody else. This is all new to them, right? They've just been called to follow this rogue rabbi who's wowing crowds of people, performing miraculous signs, And now he's called a tax collector to be one of his students. And not only that, he's eating now with a whole crowd of them. In other words, these disciples are going to have to figure out real fast what this rabbi is all about. The Gospel of Matthew, which was actually written by Levi, shares the same story. Imagine that. Imagine what he was thinking when he was writing this story. And in that, in his account, the Pharisee's question is this, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So the focus isn't isn't actually on the disciples, it's on Jesus. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why do they ask that? Because this is what Jesus is doing. 
This is what Jesus is choosing to do. And ironically, it's the Pharisees who are pointing it out. He is eating, and not just eating, he is feasting. He's having a dinner party with sinners. Jesus is spending his time, his whole evening, feasting with traitors, swindlers, people who have helped to make other people's lives miserable, people who have really royally screwed up. And this wasn't just a one-time thing, right? We know this. That this wasn't something that Jesus just did once and said, all right, I've made my point. As Peterson puts it, Jesus got a reputation early on for eating and drinking outside of conventional settings and for not being very particular with whom he ate. There's a handful of situations just in the Gospel of Luke alone where Jesus is spending time with not so acceptable people. Luke 7, Jesus is in a Pharisee's home this time and he allows a woman, a quote-unquote woman who lived a sinful life, to pour perfume on his feet and wipe them with her tears. And it says this, when a Pharisee saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is. She's a sinner. Yes, again, the Pharisee is spot on. Jesus does know exactly who this woman is. Luke 15, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Now, it's not just Levi, right? All the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Luke wants to tell us, yes, yes he does. Luke 19, Jesus is passing through Jericho and a man named Zacchaeus, who was chief tax collector, he was a chief tax collector, so incredibly wealthy, crazy wealthy, everybody knows it, he shows an interest in Jesus. And on seeing him in the tree, what does Jesus say to him? Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Like, what? And all the people mutter, ah, he's gone to be the guest at the house of a sinner. But it was symbolic of the whole of Jesus' ministry that he spent time with people who were unacceptable in the public religious eye. Why? Now returning back to our passage for this morning, because of what he says to the Pharisees in this passage, in verse 31 to 32, he steps in for his tongue-tied disciples who don't know how to respond, right? And he says this, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, my father's heart is for the people who know that they need him. And so I came to spend time with people who know that they need help, who know that there is something wrong. See, Jesus didn't come to just pat the holy people on the back like, good job, guys, you're doing great, you don't need me. No, he came to lift up those who knew that they weren't holy, that, way, that they were far from holy, who knew that they needed God to help make them holy. And here's the even crazier part. Jesus is not just spending time with these people. He's eating with them. And in that culture, and still in Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern cultures today, sharing a meal with someone 
is the ultimate sign of acceptance and respect. When you invite someone into your house and around your table, you are saying to them, I respect you. I accept you. You are welcome at my table. And considering how often we see hospitality operating in the New Testament, it's pretty obvious that this was an integral discipline of the early church to gather around a table for food along with worship, prayer, and teaching, eating together, and and not just the Eucharist, but eating together as a fellowship was the way that the church participated in the work of salvation. This is the way of Jesus, and they knew that. They felt that. They acted within it, not simply to call sinners to repentance, but to invite them into the way of his kingdom. The way where food and celebration and feasting are an an appropriate, if not necessary, response to the good news that Jesus brings to the willing heart. I'm going to say that again. Eating together and feasting and celebrating were an appropriate, if not necessary, response to the good news that Jesus brings to every willing heart. The question then for this morning is how do we then follow in Jesus' way? How do we imitate him in this way? And I want to say three things this morning. First, Jesus calls us, just as he did all of his disciples, Jesus calls us too to drop everything and follow him. And that's a generic statement, but in this context of hospitality and table gathering, that means we drop all of our excuses of being too busy and drop all of our assumptions about other people and actually make space and time to follow his example in feasting with others and feasting especially with those who we may not feel comfortable with, but who we know need and desire community in Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I know we're in a pandemic. I get it. We haven't been able to do this. And it's been one of the biggest heartaches of this season is that we can't gather together in people's homes for food and that we can't imitate Christ in this way. And I know we're all really out of practice for that reason. But realistically, the way of our culture, right? Remember, we talked about culture, this giant cultural river that just wants to sweep us along with it, right? Our culture has been pushing us in this direction and in this trajectory for years now, for long before this pandemic came about. The table used to be a gathering place for families, for neighbors, for the strangers who would come and knock on your doors. It was, it was the place of storytelling, of laughter, of sharing in each other's days, of doing life together. But as our schedules have gotten busier and life becomes more about fitting things in and less and less households are actually gathering to do this, less and less families and people and friends are actually gathering to sit down and eat meals together as if that's an event in itself. Right? Eating together has often become the first thing to go because meals take time, right? They take time. They're inefficient. They're unproductive. And so they become individualized. Now, I'll eat when I have time. I'll just grab something quick. Oh, go ahead and start eating without me. I'll arrive when I get there. You know, I'll eat with you when I come. 
which then leads to a bit of a pendulum swing when we do actually invite others over because we want everything to feel perfectly put together, right? We don't exist in mess anymore. We don't exist in spontaneity. Our hurriness and our busyness and constant eating out has created a culture of presentation. A meal can't be messy and thrown together. It has to be neat and tidy, prepared and perfectly placed, which is terrible pressure for people like Danny and I because we're really amateurs in the kitchen. And you know this, you would know this, for those of you who, are, who have come to our home, something always goes wrong. <laughs> and I always feel terrible, but it creates an experience, right? And yes, it takes vulnerability and humility, but it, it's, it's about the gathering together. It's not about the, the presentation. Why do we always need to feel so prepared? Why must everything always be planned and carefully thought out? Why, why can we only invite people over who we feel comfortable with? That's not how Jesus did it. He called Levi, and that evening, Levi hosted a party. Talk about radical hospitality and vulnerability. You're inviting the Savior over to your house. And you've only got, you know, a few hours to do it. <laughs> but the joy, this is the thing. The joy for him was in the gathering, not in the presentation. The joy was in the reason for the celebration, not how well the celebration was put on. They were celebrating Jesus and what Jesus had invited Levi into. And the joy of that gathering was not how well Levi could put on a party. The joy in that evening was that Jesus was coming over to his house. That was the joy. And this, you know, this, this wasn't anything new, right? When, for Jesus to call us to be a people... Who, who make excuses and find reasons to celebrate, not to avoid it, to feast with one another and to celebrate what we've been welcomed into. You know, this isn't anything new. Because when you read through the Old Testament, man, Israel was a people called to feast. Their God commanded them. It was in the commandments to feast, to have festivals, and not sometimes just for a day or two. Sometimes it was for a whole week. Remember what's been done for you and celebrate. These feasts, you know, the, uh, these feasts weren't always, or I should say, these feasts were always meant to be for everyone. Slaves, foreigners, anyone who was a part of the community. It was a time when, when hierarchy and class didn't matter anymore. There was no Israelite or non-Israelite. There was no slave or free. Everyone was on the same playing field during these festival times, right? Because God's feasts were for everyone who was willing to come. Which is why the second thing he calls us to do, you know, on, on top of dropping everything... And following him in this context, he calls us to feast, yes, but to feast also with fellow sinners. No matter how broken or messed up we come, Jesus calls us to meet with one another in the mess. Why? Because here's the reality, folks. We were all sick and in need of a doctor. Each and every one of us. We were all deathly sick and dying from the disease of sin. 
death was where we were all headed. As Bill mentioned a couple weeks ago, it's a pandemic greater and deeper than any other pandemic we'll ever face. It's the pandemic of sin. As we sang earlier, Lord, I was that lost cause. I was that outcast. But you died for sinners just like me. A grateful leper at your feet. Jesus knows it all, right? He knows it all. He looks at Levi and he sees all of that sickness. He sees all of the past. He sees all of his previous failures and how he's royally messed up. He knows how long he's been a tax collector and how long he's been swindling money out of people. But Jesus doesn't berate him for it or, or force him into some long list of personal confessions. For now, at least, he simply says, follow me. Jesus meets him in that place of sickness and says, I have a remedy for what you have. I have a cure for what you know is wrong. If you, if you know you are in need, follow me. If you know that there is something more and there's something you need, follow me. No questions asked. Leave all of that behind. I will show you my way to a transformed life in God. Just, just follow me. And if that's the direction that Jesus wants to take people, then that should be our hope as well. Tony Campolo, in one of his books, I've never forgotten this. This was one of the first sort of Christian living books I ever read back in my early 20s. I've never forgotten this narrative. There was a time when he was in Honolulu for a speaking gig and jet lag kept him awake at night. So he decided to leave his, his hotel and pop into a nearby diner, which wasn't exactly the, the nicest diner on the block. But at about 3.30 a.m., so this was early in the morning, 3.30 a.m., a group of women came in, some prostitutes from the street, and he overheard one of them sharing with, with her friends there um, that it was her birthday the next day. Well, the other women kind of guffawed at her and said, so what? What do you want us to do, throw a birthday party for you? You want a birthday cake? Like, you know, obviously, what do you want us to do? We can't do anything for you, so what's the big deal? We never celebrate our own birthdays. What's the big deal about it being yours, right? And so that shut the woman up uh, pretty quickly. But then when they left... Tony, having overheard this conversation, leaned over the bar and spoke with the, the owner of the diner and asked him, hey, what do, you think about, what do you think about throwing a party for her? Same time, tomorrow morning, they always came in about the same time when they would always come in. This woman's name was Agnes, and so he just suggested, how about, how about we throw a birthday party for her? And the diner owner just loved the idea, and so he gathered in all of these, you know, he, he invited all of these other women, uh, that, that knew Agnes, they decorated the whole place, and the next, the next early morning, the next day, at 3.30 a.m., same time, Agnes walked in, and everybody yelled, happy birthday. Tony said he had never seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open, her, her knees seemed to kind of buckle beneath her. A friend had to stand beside her and steady her. And everyone began to sing happy birthday. She had never before had a birthday party. Never before had a birthday cake. When it was put in front of her, she didn't know what to do with it. She, she sort of held it like it was a holy grail. 
And at the end of the evening, Tony invited everyone to say a prayer for Agnes. And afterwards, the, the diner owner said to him, Oh, I didn't know you were a, a preacher type. What kind of church do you belong to? And Tony said this, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for street people at 3.30 in the morning. You know, in this life, there's, there's always going to be pain, and there's always going to be tears, and things aren't going to work out the way we hoped. People won't, won't turn out the way we hoped. Our lives aren't going to turn out the way that we always dreamed they would. But you know what we're called to? We're called to live and love and break bread together for the sake of imitating Christ, all the while knowing that the people we least expect or the people we least desire to come are the very people who need him most. Levi's tax collector friends were the very people who needed Jesus most. And they needed to see who this God really was. Because lastly, we need to always remember that the feasting we do here, although we can't necessarily do it now in the way we would like to, we need to remember this going forward because this is going to be so important for us when we can do it again. We need to always remember that the feasting that we do here with and for one another points to and is indicative of a much greater feast that is being prepared for us. Later on in Luke, Jesus tells a parable about a banquet host inviting many guests to a banquet at his house. But all of them make excuses for why they can't come to the party. So what does the host do? He sends his servants out onto the streets to gather anyone in the alleys, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, anyone out on the roads, anyone passing by, anybody coming through the country lanes, anyone inviting all of them in so that his house can be full. In other words, God's putting on a banquet. He's throwing a party for anyone who recognizes that they need it and are willing to come inside. So when we invite others to break bread with us, we are creating a safe space for sharing the love and embracing character of our Lord. We create a sacred space around the table for Christ to meet us there and be able to proclaim good news to the poor in spirit. Dorothy Day once said this, we cannot love God unless we love each other. And to love, we must know each other. And we know him in the breaking of bread, and we know each other in the breaking of bread. Have you ever thought about that before? You come to know someone better in the breaking of bread. And we realize then we are not alone anymore. Heaven, she says, is a banquet. And life is a banquet too. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If that's what's going on in heaven, that's what we should desire here on earth as well. In, this, in the way that Jesus lived, he shows us a father who is a great banquet host 
a God who spreads his table for all who wish to come and receive, who invites all who will to come into his home, who will kill the fatted calf at the occasion of any prodigal daughter or son coming home. This is who our God is. And he is the way that Christ calls us to live. The question for us, then of course, is will we? Will we follow him in this way? Let's pray. Living God, we, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for feeding us, for nourishing us with your word. We pray, Lord, uh, that your words alone would sink deeply into our hearts. That we, Lord, would be a people of joy who seek to rejoice and to celebrate and to feast at the good news that you've brought to us. The good news that you have invited us around your table. That we've been accepted. That we've been embraced that we are loved. Help us, Lord, to live more deeply into this truth by your Holy Spirit. Give us courage, Lord, to follow your way above all others. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.